Uh, Tonight our topic is Revelation Signs and Wonders, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, I thank You so much for the gift of life. And Lord, I want to thank You for the Bible. Lord, there is so much truth here that is to be explored and to be discovered and found out. And You tell us that it's the glory of God to hide things, but it's the glory of man to find them out. And so, Lord, we are studying and we are learning and we want to grow. And we want that truth. We want to be prepared for these deceptions and the things that are coming on the world. And so, Lord, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would move among us tonight, Lord. That Your angels would be here ministering to us, helping us to understand what is going on and what these deceptions of the end time are all about. Because, Lord, we don't want to be caught unaware And we want to know exactly what's going on. And we want to know what you would have us know. And so we pray you'd guide our hearts and minds. Give us the wisdom that we need. And we pray that in the end, we would fall in love with the truth. You tell us that your people perish because they don't have a love of the truth. But Lord, we want to be among your people who love you. And the truth is uh, is Jesus. He said, uh, I am the truth, the way, and the life. So if we fall in love with the truth, we're falling in love with Him. And so, Lord, we just pray that You would do that for us, do that work that we cannot do in ourselves. And Lord, give us the power to make wise choices to follow the truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we need to look at the deceptions of the last days to see how they are happening. And in Revelation chapter 13, you'll remember that in verse uh, 11 to the end of the chapter, it's talking about the second beast, who we also know is the false prophet. And uh, this false prophet does some very interesting things in order to get people to make an image to the beast and to worship the beast and to receive the mark of the beast. And here is what it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. It says that he, and that's talking about the false prophet, performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he what? Deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs or miracles which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast and so here we see that he is deceiving and that is the whole purpose of it notice what jesus said in matthew 24 verse 24 he said for false christs and false prophets will rise and show great what signs and wonders To deceive. And so here we see again, there are going to be many miracles, and their whole design or the whole purpose of them is to deceive. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous what? Deception. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that there is going to be this deception in these last days that is going to be carried out through the working of signs and wonders or through miracles. Then in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And then the very next verse says, For they are 
what? Spirits of demons performing signs. Again, we see that this deception through this supernatural ability to perform signs. And uh, notice though that this time it reveals who's really behind it all. Notice that it says there that this is going to be spirits of demons who are those angels that rebelled with Lucifer. And they're coming out of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, the false prophet, we haven't talked about yet, have we? And we're going to get into that in, in the next couple of meetings, but... The beast, we have talked about, haven't we? The beast of Revelation 13, verse 1 through 10, is that first beast, also known as the Antichrist. And you know that we already know who that is, right? We saw that little horn in Daniel chapter 7 that came up out of that fourth beast, which we identified as Rome. And then we identified... The fact that that horn came up among the other ten horns, which were the divisions of Rome. And so we saw that this can be none other than the Roman papacy. But I ask you, what about the dragon? Now, I know we've talked about this already, but I want to I go back to it. Let's go to our Bibles and let's go to Revelation chapter 12. That's going to be page 1416 in that on that seminar Bible on your table there. Revelation chapter 12, and I want you to notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. And to try and speed things up a little bit tonight because of everything I have to talk about, I'm not going to wait as long, so I hope you'll forgive me if I I get a little bit ahead of you. Uh, But you could just write those verses down and go back and look at them again later. Okay, so Revelation 12, notice what it says in verse 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now here we see this dragon that is watching and waiting for this male child to be born so that he can devour or kill or destroy this child and who is this child that's being spoken of jesus that's right and uh we know that that it is the dragon that is doing he's getting ready to kill but let me stop for a moment and let me point you back to revelation chapter 12 verse 9 and we talked about this already when we asked who is the dragon right and we can see in that verse that the dragon is none other than Satan or the devil himself, right? But I also want to point you back to something that I've mentioned already, and that is that the devil always works through other instrumentalities, right? He doesn't always do everything in the open. For instance, the Bible calls him the serpent of old, right? Why does it do that? Because he worked through the serpent in the Garden of Eden to deceive Eve into eating the forbidden fruit, right? And so he is working through these other instrumentalities on the earth to deceive. And if you read those two passages in the Bible that really talk about the devil as Lucifer before he uh, was cast out of heaven, 
If you go to uh, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, it really identifies their Lucifer. But it's very interesting because if you look at those passages, you see that it's talking about the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. But as you read through those passages, you see that it's talking about more than an earthly king. It's actually talking about Lucifer himself, and he's working through those earthly kings to accomplish those things he's trying to, to do. But it's, it's talking about the devil himself. And so he works through these instrumentalities. And yes, it is the devil, but in this passage that we're talking about in, uh, in uh, Revelation uh, 13, where we see this sequence of this spirits of demons that are coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. This is really Satan working through human instrumentalities, right? And then when we, uh, we get into uh, verses where we see when it was talking about the dragon trying to kill the male child, what instrumentality was Satan working through? Who was it that tried to kill Jesus? It was Herod, that's right, who was representing Rome, right? And so what we're really seeing here is that the dragon, yes, it's Satan, but He's working through human instrumentalities and so that we could say then that the dragon also represents Rome. Okay? And we can see that before Rome was Christian, and you'll remember that when Herod tried to kill Jesus, Jesus just coming on the scene, Rome was not Christian. Rome was pagan at that time. And so what we're seeing here is that the devil is working through pagan Rome as the dragon, and then we're going to see how he goes and tries to work through the beast as well. And then eventually you get to Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, where it says, So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, right? Then they worship the beast. Eventually, pagan Rome, you remember, would give its power, seat, and great authority to papal Rome or to Christian Rome, right? And you remember, we talked about this already, but do you remember that picture of Constantine, the emperor of Rome, giving his crown to the Pope? And so when we look in here and we see in Revelation chapter 13 in that last part of verse 2 where it says that the beast which you saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of the bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. What we're seeing is pagan Rome giving their power to papal Rome. Right? Are you with me on that? We've already talked about that, but I just wanted to refresh you on that. And history perfectly shows that this is both pagan Rome and papal Rome that we're talking about here. Because you'll remember that during that time that that first beast was persecuting God's people and then claiming to have the authority of God and then reigning as this both political and religious power for 1,260 years. And so what we're seeing here then is that the dragon 
is represented by pagan Rome and the beast is represented by papal Rome. Okay? And uh, before Rome became Christian, it was pagan. And let me show you this. I want to read you something straight out of the history books. I got this on an online encyclopedia. Notice what it says. Ancient Rome's religion encompasses the collection of beliefs and rituals practiced in ancient Rome in the form of cult practices. Now, what this is saying is before Rome was Christian, that it was pagan. And the the beliefs that they had that were practiced throughout ancient Rome, it's saying they were cult practices. It goes on to say, the cult practices of Rome extended across Italy with the rise of the Roman Empire. And these religions were polytheistic and as such are sometimes referred to as pagan. And so right from the history books is where I would come out to you and say, see here, before Rome was Christian, it was pagan. And it was polytheistic. What that means is they worshipped many gods, right? Okay, so Rome, before it became Christian, before it became the beast, it was the dragon, right? And the dragon was pagan. And pagan means polytheistic, and basically it's anything that is not Christian that leads towards occult practices. But notice here that these spirits of demons that are performing signs are coming out of the mouths of all three of them, starting with pagan Rome and going forward, right? And the reason for this is that the root of paganism is the occult, the supernatural, the spirit of demon types of practices. And the root of these occult practices is what we need to get into tonight if we're going to understand these deceptions that are going on in the end of time. And so the root of these occult practices that can sometimes perform signs and wonders and miracles, and we have a word for that today. Talking about everything that I just said, being able to do that, the pagan worship, we have a word for that today, and that word is called spiritualism. And you've probably heard that word before. But I'd like you to notice, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, spiritualism is the belief that the dead communicate with the living as through a medium. Now, you'll remember that I said we don't want to let outside sources tell us what something means, right? But in this particular case, the the Bible doesn't use that word spiritualism. And so it doesn't give us a definition. So this is the best one that we have. And uh, paganism and occult practices were common in the days of the wanderings of the children of Israel. And I want to point out to you a couple of verses. In uh, Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, And the people of Israel ate and bowed down to their gods. And so what you see is as Israel is heading towards the promised land, that they're coming among these people who are pagan, who are into worshiping all of these other gods, and they seduce the children of Israel into worshiping these other gods with them. And then when you go to Psalm 106, 
verse 28, it says, in talking about the children of Israel, that they joined themselves also to Baal Peor, and they ate sacrifices that were made to the dead. And so here you see that the children of Israel are surrounded by these pagan nations that are worshiping false gods and are worshiping uh, the dead. And so they're offering those sacrifices. But I'd like you to notice that when the Apostle Paul comments on these pagan practices and these sacrifices, that he doesn't say that they're offering sacrifices to these other gods or offering them to the dead. But notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. He says, "...the things which the Gentiles sacrifice..." They sacrifice to who? To demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons, he says. So even though there are people in the world who believe that they are worshiping their gods and they may be trying to communicate with the dead, Paul says they're actually trying to communicate with demons. And so when we read this in the book of Revelation and we see these warnings that are clearly pointing out the deceptions of the last days and that they are going to occur by signs and wonders. And when we see those signs and wonders, we know that they are associated with paganism or spiritualism or occult practices, right? And so we can better understand then the following words in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, verse 23. It says, For by your what? Sorcery all the nations were deceived. Now, you may be wondering, how could all of the nations of the world be deceived when the majority of people in the world don't believe in that, right? But the Bible says that they will be, and we need to learn how, don't we? Alright, so I want to take you back to the Old Testament and ask you a question. What was it that God said in regard to His people practicing spiritualism or attempting to communicate with the dead? God said don't do it, right? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31 It says, give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And then in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6, it says, and the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from his people. And then just a few verses later, still in Leviticus 20, verse 27, it says, A man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. So this was a very serious issue, wasn't it? And uh, God said that if you were a medium, that you were going to be cut off from the land. And the Bible says that if you have familiar spirits. Well, I ask you the question, what's a familiar spirit? Well, it's a spirit that you're familiar with, right? I mean, they were attempting to communicate with people who were dead that they were familiar with. In other words, someone that they knew in life that had died, and now they're trying to bring them back from the dead to talk to them, right? 
And so what we see here from the Bible is that when you're attempting to communicate with the dead, you're really communicating with demons. I'd like you to notice what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 through 12. And this is Moses talking to the children of Israel. He says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures up spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Now I want you to notice what he's saying here. He's saying that there are people that are living in the land that I'm going to give you who are practicing this kind of witchcraft and sorcery. He doesn't lump them all under one name. He wants to make sure he covers them all, doesn't he? He breaks them all out. And he says, I don't want you to do that. And specifically, he mentions that the reason that he is giving them the promised land is because they're doing this and he's going to drive them out. And the implication then is that if they do those things, he's going to drive them out too, right? And so I want to talk to you about a story that happens in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. And you can write that down and you can go back and look through that story later on, but I'll just give you the basics of it. This is where the people of Israel were crying out to God that they wanted a king just like all the other nations around them. And so God says, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he made Saul the first king of Israel. And Saul started out as a pretty good king. He was meek and humble in his own eyes. But as time went on, he began to try and take control and do things himself instead of waiting on God. And eventually he got to the point where he stopped listening to God and doing what God had told him. And he pretty much hardened his heart towards God. And then when he would go back and try and talk to God, God wouldn't talk to him because he wasn't doing what God had told him to do. And so Saul is wanting to talk to someone and God's not answering him. So he decides that he wants to talk to the prophet Samuel who had already died. And so he wants to call Samuel up from the dead so that he can talk to him. And it's interesting that before all of this, God had told Saul to wipe out all of the mediums in the land. And you can go back and you can read about that too. But what's interesting to me about it is now Saul wants to see a medium and he goes to all of his men who are supposed to have wiped out all of these people who are into sorcery and conjuring up spells, witchcraft, all of that stuff. And he asked them if there's any mediums in the land, and they immediately say, yeah, there's a witch of Endor. Now, if they knew that she was there, why didn't they kill her? I don't know. Maybe she had a lot of power and they weren't able to capture her or whatever. But Saul decides that he's going to go see this medium, and he goes, and I'd like you to notice what the Bible says. It says that as she tried to bring Samuel up from the grave that she perceived something that was Samuel. Did you catch that? She perceived something that was Samuel. And then she begins to describe what she's seeing there, and they assume that this is, in fact, Samuel. 
And I personally believe that this is not Samuel, and there are many reasons for this. I'm not going to go into all of them, but I'll share a couple of them with you. And let me ask you a question. Samuel was a prophet of God. So do you think that Samuel was righteous or unrighteous? He was a righteous man, and I think if you read through the Bible, you would discover for yourself that he was. He was very good for the nation of Israel. But if Samuel was a righteous man, and there is the possibility that a person could be a spirit just kind of floating around, because that's the implication that we have in this story, right? That this spirit comes up from the ground. But if Samuel is a righteous man, and he could be this spirit that's floating around, where do you think he'd be coming from? Probably a little further north, right? he probably wouldn't be coming up from the earth, would he? And so there's one of those clues that would help us to decide that. But the Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a median for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore... The Lord killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So Saul's fate was ultimately sealed when he went to see that medium. You see that from the story? Now, let me ask you a question. If Samuel was a man of God, and he knew what God had told the children of Israel, that they should not seek mediums, Do you think, being a man of God, that he would have come to this medium and talked to Saul when he knew that doing that was an abomination to God? I don't think so, right? So what are we seeing here? We're not seeing Samuel coming up from the dead, but we're seeing is demons trying to pretend to be Samuel, right? Okay. And of course, we know that to try and do that is an abomination to the Lord. And today, we still have this kind of thing happening. And today, we call it spiritualism, right? The birth of modern spiritualism was 1848. And it began in Rochester, New York. You ever heard of the Rochester knockings? Apparently, there were a couple of ladies who had a house that... uh, they thought that the people that owned the house before them, that they had died and that they were haunting the house. And they had all of these knockings that were going on, doors were slamming, and all of those things. That was the beginning of what we would call today modern day spiritualism. And I want you to notice something. Uh, I'm going to read to you a passage from a letter from a judge of the Supreme Court of New York as he describes what's going on. He says, Scarcely more than four years have elapsed since the Rochester knockings were first known among us. And so if the knockings were first known in 1848, he's writing this letter somewhere around the end of 1852, early 1853, right? Just four years later. Notice what he says. The mediums in 1848 could be counted by units. In other words, 5, 10, 20. But now by the thousands. Then believers could be numbered by hundreds, now by tens of thousands. It is believed by the best informed that the whole number in the United States must be several hundred thousand. 
And in this city, which was New York, there must be from 20 to 25,000. This was back in 1852 or 1853 that he's saying this, right? And he goes on to say, There are 10 or 12 newspapers and periodicals devoted to the cause, and the spiritual library embraces more than 100 different publications, some of which have already maintained a circulation of more than 10,000 copies. Besides the undistinguished multitude, there are many men of high standing and talent among them. Doctors, lawyers, clergymen in great number, a Protestant bishop, the learned and reverent president of a college, judges of our high court, members of Congress, foreign ambassadors, and ex-members of the United States Senate. And so here we have this guy back in 1853, just four years after this beginning of these Rochester knockings, which he's saying, look, this thing is exploding, right? They could count the number of mediums in the tens or twenties when it began four years earlier, and now it's in the thousands. Well, guess what it's like today, right? It's everywhere. You have the shows like Ghost Whisperer and The Medium, which are highly acclaimed TV shows that are featuring attractive women who apparently can speak to the dead. And it's not all fiction either. TV shows like the Lisa Williams Project and messages from Carla May are hosted by professional mediums who claim to have a real connection with those beyond the grave. Near-death experiences have produced many books that are continually being produced and try to explain people's experiences and those who have passed from this life to the next. One of the most popular mediums today is New York Times best-selling author Sylvia Brown, who is also a regular guest on many of the talk show's hosts. She's been on the Montel Williams show. She's been on Larry King Live years ago. The Entertainment Tonight. And there's another famous medium by the name of Alison Dubois, who is the inspiration behind that NBC TV show, The Medium. But Dubois and Brown both acknowledge that they have a spiritual guide that constantly directs their lives. And Sylvia Brown even confessed this. She said, I was eight years old alone in my bed one night when a glow of light cut through the darkness and the slightly vague form of a tall slender woman with long black hair stepped towards me from the core of the light. Don't be afraid, she said to me. I come from God. And uh, Sylvia Brown says, I ran screaming to my grandmother who calmly explained that I had just received a visit from my spirit guide. And then she goes on to say, that that spirit guide has been her closest companion ever since. And she claims to have that connection. But I want to ask you a question. Why all of this talk about communication with the spirit world? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I think we are being set up for some deceptions that are coming on the world. In fact, many of us in this room have lost loved ones. I have. And wouldn't it be nice if we could talk to them, right? I would love to be able to do that. And yet God says that mediums and those who claim to communicate with the dead are an abomination to Him. And why is that? Well, let's ask the question. Can the dead speak to us? 
Because if they can, it would be foolish for us not to talk to them or to expect communication from them, wouldn't it? I mean, what would be so wrong with that if we could? Well, I'd like to see what the Bible has to say about this, so turn with me to John chapter 11. And let's see what the Bible says. That's going to be page 1236 in your seminar Bible. John 11, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. The Bible says, These things He said, and after that He said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. However, Jesus spoke of His death, but they thought that He was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And notice what it says next, verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 15 says, And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he, being Lazarus, had already been dead in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, I want to ask you the question. Jesus said, Lazarus is sleeping. And then he said, Lazarus is dead. So do you think Jesus is confused? Is Lazarus sleeping or is Lazarus dead? Jesus is not confused. What Jesus is telling us is that death is a sleep-like state. Notice what it says there. Look at verse 25 again. He says, And he who believes in Me shall never die. Well, how can Jesus say that when we know that people die all the time? Right? What Jesus is saying is that that death that we experience in this life is only a sleep-like state until the resurrection. And then we are raised to eternal life, right? That's how Jesus could say you'll never die. Because He's not counting that as the final death or what the Bible calls the second death, right? He's saying that that death is simply sleeping in the ground, waiting the resurrection, but ultimately that we would be raised at the last trumpet. And so let's look to see what the Bible says about this subject of sleep. Notice what Psalm 13 verse 3 says. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes lest I what? Sleep the sleep of death, right? The Bible teaches that death is like a sleep that lasts until Christ's second coming. Death is referred to as sleep more than 50 times in the Bible. Now, we're not going to look at all 50 of those tonight. I'm going to just share a few of those with you. But 50 times the Bible refers to death as sleep. 
And, and, and why is that? Why does Jesus use sleep to refer to death? Well, think about it. When you are sleeping, are you engaged in life? No, you're not going shopping. You're not playing with the kids or grandkids. You're not making a meal, right? You are unconscious. Think about the best night of sleep that you've ever had. I'll tell you what mine was like. I laid down, my head hit the pillow, and the next thing I know, the alarm clock's going off, right? I don't remember nothing. It is a state of unconsciousness. And that's what he's telling us that death is like. And so I have an important question. Is there any consciousness in death? Now, some of you may be surprised by this, but I'm just going to tell you that when you die, you don't go straight to heaven or straight to hell. That may be a surprise to you because much of the Christian world teaches that you do, don't they? When you die, you simply rest in the ground until the resurrection. And the reason that the word sleep is used throughout the Bible to describe death is because there's no consciousness in death. Now think about this story of Lazarus. Think about the fact that Lazarus was dead for four days when Jesus came to raise him from the dead. Now let's just say that that popular view that when you die, you go straight to heaven or straight to hell. Where do you think that Lazarus would have gone when he died? Probably would have gone to heaven, right? He was a godly man who loved the Lord and very good friends with the Lord. So imagine that Lazarus has been in heaven for four days. And then Jesus calls him back and wakes him up from the dead. What do you think Lazarus would have said? Lord, I thought you loved me. What did you bring me back here for? I was in heaven and you brought me back to this dark, dreary, sin-filled world, right? But did Lazarus say that? No, he didn't say anything about that at all, right? Because for Lazarus, he was sick, he laid down in bed, and the next thing he knows, Jesus is calling him out of a tomb, right? Can you imagine? He's like, what, is, what, what are all these things on me? Where am I? Right? What's going on? Because it was a sleep-like state waiting the resurrection. Notice what Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6 says. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know that they're going to go straight to heaven when they die. Is that what it says? No, it says that the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for their memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. The Bible is pretty clear, isn't it? The dead know nothing. Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4 says this, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to this earth, in that very day his what? His thoughts perish. All this is saying is that a person breathes their last breath, they die, they go down into the grave, and their thoughts perish. There's no more consciousness in death, right? Now, I know that there are those that teach that, that you go straight to heaven. But think about that for a minute. If you went straight to heaven, do you think that you would be talking to God? You think you'd be praising God? 
This says their thoughts perish. Notice what Psalm 115 verse 17 says. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. Do you think if you went straight to heaven, you'd be praising God? I guarantee you I would be, right? It's unconsciousness. It is the sleep of death. It is a dreamless, comfortable, restful sleep. And this, I mean, think about that for a minute. This is so much more comforting than you have a loved one that has gone to heaven and they're looking down at you and they're seeing all the mistakes you're making, right? And they're like, they're, they're, they're pulling their hair out. They're, they're screaming at you. What are you doing? Right? Just think about how much better it is that they're just sleeping in the grave. Or look at the other end of the spectrum. Imagine that you had a son who, who uh, got in an automobile accident and was killed and he didn't have Jesus in his heart and he, now he's going to be in hell forever. Right? This is so much better to know the truth that those who are dead are sleeping in the grave. The Bible says that when we die, we sleep. That the dead know nothing. That their very thoughts perish. That they do not praise the Lord, but they go down into silence. And that brings up a question, do dead people haunt houses? I mean, that whole Rochester knockings thing, right? I'd like you to notice what it says in Job chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house nor shall his place know him anymore. That's pretty clear, isn't it? When a person dies, they don't go back to their house and haunt that house, right? There's no returning to that house. And so you look at those Rochester knockings and other stories that you've heard about uh, supposed people that are, uh, that are uh, you know, in these houses. The person that owned that house is dead. They're sleeping in the grave. But does that mean that those people are crazy? Does that mean there's nothing happening there? No, there's something happening there, right? But what is it? It's spirits of demons who are ready to deceive. But someone might ask, well, what about the soul? Right? Well, we need to look at the soul. And I would like you to notice what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's what it says in the New King James. But I really like the King James. It says, And man became a living soul. Right? So here's what we have. Body plus breath equals a living soul. That's how God describes how He made man. He made man out of the dust of the earth. He took some clay. He formed a body. Then He breathed into man and man became a living soul. And so what we have here is a mathematical formula. Body plus breath equals living soul. And so... Then when we read Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, it might make more sense. It says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And so here we see that when a person dies, they return to the dust of the earth, and the Spirit returns to God. Right? And this, this is not talking about a conscious person or, or entity of a person returning to God. Because I'd like you to notice that 
in the original Hebrew language that Ecclesiastes was written in, the word that is uh, transcribed to the English word spirit is the word ruach. Okay? And that word ruach in that particular place is spirit, but there are other places in the Bible that that same word ruach is translated into English breath. So look at it again. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the breath shall return unto God who gave it. And so what we're seeing here is that death is actually the opposite of creation. Right? If you have a living person and you take away the breath, what do you have? You have a corpse. Right? All this is saying is that the life-giving power of God returns to God and the body goes into the ground. It's very similar to taking a lamp that has a light bulb and plugging it into the power. And the light bulb comes on, right? But as soon as you unplug it, there's no more power there, right? It's the same thing. Psalm 104, verse 29 and 30 says, You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, and that's the... Hebrew word ruach, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, the same word ruach, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. And so all this is talking about is life and death. It's talking about a person uh, who has died, they, their breath or their spirit returns to God and they wait the resurrection. And then a person who is just coming forth from the mother's womb, he gives them the breath of life or the Spirit, and now they are living. Right? It's the exact same thing. I'd like you to notice what it says in Genesis 35, verse 18. It says, And so it was, as Rachel's soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Ani. But the father called his name Benjamin. The NIV, I like the way the NIV says it. It makes it very simple. It says, as Rachel breathed her last because she was dying, she said his name was Ben-Ani. So all this is telling us is that Rachel, right before she died, named her son. Right? But as she breathed her last, she died. That's all it's saying. Now, some people wonder then, well, what happens to the soul? Right? Because we have this mindset that you have a body and then you have a soul and the soul is the conscious thinking part of us and it's totally separate from the body. And so what happens? People say, well, that wasn't really you that died, right? The body died, but the real you has gone on to heaven. That's the popular teaching, isn't it? And we think that somehow that we can exist consciously and enjoy things without the body. But friends, that's not how God made us. He made us as a whole person. Body plus breath equals living soul. Let me give you another example of this. Imagine that you had some boards and some nails. And you took them and you uh, nailed those nails into those boards and you made a box. Now what happens if you take away the nails? Do you still have a box? No, you have boards, right? So the same is true. It has to be body plus breath equals living soul. And if you take away the breath, you don't have a living body. You have a corpse, right? Does that make sense? 
Perhaps this is confusing because you've heard that the soul is this separate conscious entity inside of you, but what's that really saying? Let's just, let's just think about that theology for a minute. What is that saying if, if someone says to you, yeah, the, that's the body, but, that, but they went straight to heaven. What's that saying? That's saying that they didn't really die, right? The body died, but the real you went to heaven. So what's that really saying? That's saying that that person is immortal. Isn't it? That's right. Now, let's ask a question then. Can a soul die? I'd like you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. That's going to be page 972 in your seminar Bible. Ezekiel chapter 18, excuse me, 18. And we're going to look at verse 4. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Notice what it says. This is God who is speaking. And He says, Behold, all souls are Mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is Mine. The soul who sins shall what? Shall die. And so if the soul is a whole person, then what this is saying is that if a person sins, they're going to die. Well, that's total agreement with what the whole Bible says, isn't it? And so, it's not this separate entity uh, that we're talking about here. A soul is a whole person. Body plus breath. Now, let's look at another verse. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. That's going to be page 1122 in your seminar Bible. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 28. Jesus is speaking here. And this is a verse that we're probably all very familiar with. Jesus says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear... Let me reread it. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, don't worry about someone who can take your life because you're just going to be sleeping in the grave waiting the resurrection. And if you are, have your life in me, I'm going to raise you from the dead. So don't worry about that at all. But you should worry about me because I cannot raise you from the dead and then you're gone forever, right? That's all that Jesus is saying. So is the soul immortal? No, not at all. Apparently, the soul of man is not immortal, but it's mortal. And I want you to notice something here. You remember when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and God kicked them out of the garden? I'd like you to notice part of the reason that God said that He was doing that. Genesis 3, verse 22 says, And now lest He put out His hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and what? Live forever. You see, friends, God did not want us to live forever in this sinful state. And that's why He kicked them out of the garden and later on took the tree of life up to heaven because He didn't want us eating of that and living in this sinful state. He wanted us to uh, be perfected and then He would give us eternal life. Notice what it says in Job 4, verse 17. Shall mortal man be more just than God? 
Shall man be more pure than his Maker? Man is mortal. Right? There is no place in the Bible that talks about the soul being immortal. Uh, I'd like you to go with me to Romans chapter 2. It's going to be page 1294 in that seminar Bible. Romans chapter 2. And notice what it says in verses 5 through 7. Romans 2, 5 through 7. The Bible says, but in, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, what's that next word? Seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Let me ask you a question. Why would we have to seek for immortality if we had it naturally? Right? Paul is telling us to seek for immortality. We should be seeking for it. We should be desiring it. We should be doing everything that we can to attain it because we don't have, have it naturally in and of ourselves. And so then the question is, well, who is immortal? I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It'll be page 1365 in that seminar Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. The Bible says that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless unto our Lord Jesus Christ, appearing which He will manifest in His own time, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who what? Who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light. And so here we clearly see from the Bible that God is the only one that has immortality, right? And then when you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, and Jesus says, I hold the keys to death, you understand then, right, that He is the only one that has immortality and He is the only one that can give us immortality. Notice what, it, notice what we're talking about here. Mortal means subject to death and immortal means imperishable. And the Bible never uses the term immortal soul or immortality of the soul. Only God is immortal. Only God has that uh, that life in Him. It is a characteristic of divinity. Only God has life in Him unborrowed and underived. And that's what makes Him God. And, and we, on the other hand, are naturally mortal. And there's only one way for you and me to have immortality. Notice what John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have immortality. Right? That would have everlasting life. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that God has brought immortality to light through the Gospel. And so the only way that you and I can receive immortality... Ooh, I almost messed that up, didn't I? The only way that we can receive immortality is to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you to notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15. We looked at this the other night, but I want to look at it again. It's going to be page 1325 in your seminar Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's start in verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all what? We shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so here we see that we receive immortality when? At the resurrection, that's right. That's when we receive that immortality. Not when we die. We don't die and go straight to heaven and get immortality. Or we don't have it inherently in us. But we receive it at the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet and God, and the what? The dead in Christ will rise first. Remember we were talking about the other night when I said that I pointed out that Jesus descended from heaven with a shout? And I said, I don't think that that's going to be silent. When Jesus shouts, He wakes the dead. Amen? Yes. And if you read that passage carefully, around that what that verse is saying, you're going to find some very interesting things. The first thing you realize is that Jesus is answering a question. And, and the, the question was that there were some people that thought that those who were alive were going to go to heaven before those who were dead. And Jesus is straightening that out. And He's basically saying that, that we who are alive are not going ahead of them. But the implication then is that those who are dead are not going ahead of us either. Because He goes on to say that we're all going to meet Him in the air And thus, or in this way, then we will all be with the Lord, right? So we are all going at the same time. All of those throughout history who have died are waiting in the grave. And when Christ comes, those who are alive at that time are going to join those who are raised from the dead and we're all going up together. Praise God for that. Then the interesting thing about this verse is when He's done saying that, He says Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But when you go to a, a, a funeral, how do they try to comfort you? Oh, your loved one's in heaven, right? That's, that's what they try to say. But the Bible is pretty clear that we're all going together. We were all going to be reunited with Christ on that glorious reunion day of the second coming of Christ. And it... And, and here's the thing, this whole theology gives us the impetus to the coming of Christ. Think about that for a minute. What is important about the coming of Christ if everybody dies and goes straight to heaven? It loses its value, doesn't it? There's nothing important about it. And it, 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 it interferes with the doctrine of the judgment. 
And we're going to be talking about that in a couple of nights, right? It, it does away with it because the, the decision's already made, isn't it? You go straight to heaven. So there's no need for a judgment. Let's look for a moment at how Jesus understands death. Now, I know this is new to some of you, but stick with me here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. And I'd like you to notice what it says starting in verse 23. Matthew 22. It's going to be page 1139 in your seminar Bible. The Bible says, "...the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Him and asked Him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second, also the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman also died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. This is a very interesting question, isn't it? Because notice that the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, they come to Jesus and they ask Him a question about the resurrection. So clearly, they're just trying to trick Him into saying something that they can use against Him, right? The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Because they have no hope. Right? They're, they're hopeless. There's no hope without the resurrection. But notice what Jesus says to them. In verse 29, He says, You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. What's, what's Jesus saying? He says, You believe there's no resurrection, but you are mistaken. You don't know the power of God. God can raise the dead. Right? And He goes on to say, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. And so Jesus is is telling them there is a resurrection, right? But notice what He says next. Verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead... I'm going to stop right there. But concerning the resurrection of the dead... So anything that Jesus is about to say has to prove that there's a resurrection. Isn't that right? They're saying there is no resurrection. Jesus is saying you're wrong and I'm going to prove it to you. Right? Notice what He says. But concerning the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so there are many Bible teachers that teach today, see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went straight to heaven. Because God is not the God of the dead, He's the God of the living, therefore they have to be in heaven already. But friends, that is a slaughtering of the text. Because remember, whatever Jesus is about to say has to prove the resurrection, right? The point is this, that if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are in the grave, then there must be a resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, He's the God of the living. Here's, look at this proof of the resurrection. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. After all, how can God be the God of a person who can't acknowledge Him? Because the dead do not know anything, right? They go down into the grave. There's no more praise. There's nothing. There's no consciousness. And because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried, therefore, there must be a resurrection in order for God to be their God because He's not the God of the dead. But... If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all went to heaven when they died, then Jesus' proof proves no such thing as the resurrection. Nor would there be any need for one. If we can truly enjoy the bliss of heaven without the resurrection, then why would Paul get so excited about the resurrection saying that he was looking forward to it with eager expectation? The Bible is clear. Jesus is clear that there is a resurrection and if we are going to if he is going to be the god of the living then there has to be a resurrection now look with me in John chapter 5 that's going to be page 1226 of your seminar bible John chapter 5 I get a little excited sometimes don't I ah God's got me all fired up tonight. I'd like you to notice what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. John 5, and we're going to look at 28 and 29. Jesus is speaking and He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the what? Graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus' words are plain and simple to understand, aren't they? He says that when He comes, there are going to be people who are going to be where? In the grave, right? Isn't that what that verse says? He says, all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. He speaks nothing about any people who their bodies are in the grave and they are the separate entity, the spirit that has gone to heaven. He doesn't talk about that at all. Go back just uh, one page probably in your Bible to John 6 and notice what it says in verse 39 and 40. Jesus is speaking. And he says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up when? At the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have immortality or everlasting life, and I will raise him up when? At the last day. Now go down and look at verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day, right? Jesus continually pointed to the last day or the day of his second coming as the resurrection and as our hope, right? All the hope of the Bible is the resurrection. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not true, I would have told you so. But I go to prepare a place for you so that when you die, you can immediately come to heaven and we'll be together. Is that what He says? No, He says, I go to prepare a place for you 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Right? He's saying that the only way that you and I are going to get to heaven is when He comes again. Because the very next part of that verse says that where I am, there you may be also. The way that we are going to be with Christ is when He comes to get us and to take us home. In the meantime, if we die, we are sleeping in the grave awaiting the resurrection. Well, how did the apostles understand death? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It's going to be page 1254 of your seminar Bible. And notice what it says in verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then notice what David says concerning Jesus. Verse 25, I saw the Lord always before my face, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, Peter says here that this wasn't David talking about himself, but this was David talking in a messianic psalm about Jesus. And he says that the Holy One would not see corruption. Who is that Holy One? Jesus, that's right. And why didn't He see corruption? Because He rose from the dead, right? Now look at verse 29 through 34. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he was talking about Jesus ascending into the heavens, right? The teaching of the apostles is very clear. That when you die... You sleep that sleep of death until the resurrection. Now let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's going to be page 1323 of your seminar Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 19. Notice what Paul says to us. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have what? 
perished, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So what's Paul telling us there? He's saying those that have fallen asleep in Christ, if there's no resurrection, they've perished. There's no hope for them and there's no hope for us outside of the resurrection. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? It would be a total distortion of all of the texts that we have looked at, especially this one, to say that the people were already in heaven. Right? Because they wouldn't have perished. They would have already been in heaven. What's this saying? This is saying if there's no resurrection, then you have died and there's no coming back. I'd like you to notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. It's going to be page 1382 of your seminar Bible. And we're going to look at verse 13. And notice what it says. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now go down to verse 39 and 40. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made what? Perfect apart from us. What's this saying? It's saying that all of those faithful people that have already died, they are not going to heaven ahead of us. We're all going at the exact same time. This is simply saying everything that all of the previous verses that we've looked at already, right? Now, friends, please, if you still think that when you die, you go straight to heaven, remember that when you study the Bible, you have to put it all together because it's all inspired by God. And if it's all inspired, it all has to be in agreement. And so if you think you still go to heaven, then you have to take all those verses that we just looked at and you have to show me how you can put them in agreement with that. And if you can't, then we don't have the correct interpretation. We have to put it all together, don't we? Some people get confused about this when Paul says that he was ready to depart and be with Christ. And people say, see, he's going straight to heaven. But what's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to sleep that sleep of death, and my very next conscious thought is going to be when Christ wakes me up. And to him, it's going to seem instantaneous because there was no conscious living in between that time period. Now, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's going to be page 1368 in your seminar Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And notice what it says in verses 6 through 8. Paul says... For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me immediately when I die, because I'm going straight to heaven. That's not what he said, was it? He says, which the righteous judge will give me on that day. Which day? Resurrection day. And not only me but also to all who have loved His appearing. Paul's saying the same thing. He's consistent through all the epistles, isn't it? That we are all going to sleep in the grave until Christ comes. Remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 23? Paul said that he wanted to depart and be with Christ. 
Now he's saying the time for my departure is at hand. But that doesn't mean he's going straight to heaven. He's saying it's time for me to sleep that sleep of death, right? And he's saying I'm not going alone. When that day comes, we're all going together. It's going to be his next conscious thought. Well, then the question is, well, how did Jesus' followers understand death? You remember when Jesus came to Martha when Lazarus was dead. And do you remember what He said to her? He said, Lazarus will live again. Right? You remember that? And notice what He said here. John eleven twenty four. 24. Martha said to Him, I know that He will rise again. When? In the resurrection at the last day. And so if you have any question about when the last day is, It's resurrection day, isn't it? It's the day when Jesus Christ comes. So, let me ask you a question. If this didn't come from Jesus, and this didn't come from His apostles, and it didn't come from His followers, then where did the idea of an immortal soul come from? Spiritualism teaches that the soul is immortal. But before that, pagan Greek philosophy taught that the soul is immortal. And before that, in the Garden of Eden, the first lie that was ever spoken to humanity said, you shall not surely die. Right? That was the first lie recorded by the devil ever told. And the Bible, and again and again, speaks about death as perishing or sleeping. And yet we do total violence to those words by saying that we don't really die. But the real you lives on and goes straight to heaven, right? And it's just that shell of a body that remains. But the Bible never says that. It says you are in the grave. You shall go down in silence. That the dead know nothing. That the dead do not praise God. That in that day their thoughts perish. I'd like you to notice what Amos Phelps said in a sermon called, Is Man by Nature Immortal? He said, This doctrine can be traced through the muddy channels of the corrupted Christianity, a perverted Judaism, and a pagan philosophy, a superstitious idolatry, to the great instigator of the mischief in the Garden of Eden. The Protestants borrowed it from the Catholics, the Catholics from the Pharisees, the Pharisees from the pagans, and the pagans from the old serpent who first preached the doctrine amid the lowly bowels of paradise to an audience all too willing to hear and heed the new and fascinating theology, you shall not surely die. I'd like you to notice what Amos Phelps said right after that. He says, if you have fallen in with some who call themselves Christians, but they do not admit to the truth of the resurrection and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls when they die are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christian. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection or you know somebody that doesn't, don't believe for one minute that they are Christians. Notice what Clark Pinnock, a professor of theology at the McMaster Divinity of School in Canada said. He said, anthropological dualism, 
That's the belief that the body and the soul or the spirit are some separate entities and that the soul can live on without the body. He says anthropological dualism has done such serious harm in the weakening of our blessed hope of Christ's appearing and distorting our understanding of the world to come. Notice what John Stott said, who is the founder and president of London Institute of Christianity. It cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy the human beings because they are immortal for the immortality and therefore indestructibility of the soul is a Greek and not a biblical concept. Well, then people ask, well, what about the thief on the cross? Because didn't Jesus say to him, you will be with me in paradise today? Right? Didn't Jesus say that? Well, let's look at the verse. Luke 23, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But friends, I want to point something out to you. And I, and I want to try and bring understanding to this verse because this may be the most complicated one of them all. But I want you to know that the New Testament was written in Greek. You realize that, right? Right? And in the Greek language, there is no punctuation. There's no apostrophes, no periods, no commas, no exclamation points. There is no punctuation in the Greek language. The punctuation was added later by the Bible translators and they put it where they thought it was best. But punctuation matters in the English language, doesn't it? Let me give you an example of this. A woman without her man is nothing. What do you think about that, ladies? Probably not so good, huh? Well, how about this one? A woman without her man is nothing. Punctuation made a whole big difference, didn't it? If you recognize that that comma should have been after the word today, then it makes a huge difference. Let me explain to you why. Because Jesus was hanging on the cross and everyone was yelling at Him. They were crucifying Him. He was hanging there in humility naked and there's this one man out of everyone that's around him there's one thief hanging on a cross that recognizes his divinity and that one man says lord remember me when you come into your kingdom one man that's it and jesus said to him assuredly i say to you today above all days as I'm hanging here on the cross and it appears that I am going into the grave, as it appears that I have no power to save myself, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Amen? Now, let me show you why I think that this is the only possible answer to this. Did Jesus go to paradise that day? You'll remember that Jesus died on the cross on Friday and He slept in the grave on Saturday and He arose on Sunday. I love the fact that the reason that Jesus died for us 
is because the law of God could not be changed. Jesus had to die and meet the penalty for our sin. And even in His death, Jesus wouldn't break the fourth commandment. He slept on the Sabbath day. I love that about Jesus. I'd like you to look with me in John chapter 20. It's going to be page 1249 in your seminar Bible. John chapter 20. And we are going to look at verses 16 and 17. And I want to show you here that Jesus didn't go to heaven that day. By the way, if you do a study of paradise, you will discover that that's heaven. And so let me show you how Jesus didn't go to heaven that day. Look at chapter 20. Look at verse 16 and 17. This is on resurrection morning. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not what? I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Jesus died on the cross Friday, and He told the thief, you're going to be with me in paradise. He slept in the grave on Saturday. Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he was raised from the dead and he says to Mary, I haven't been to heaven yet. Right? And if you question which day Jesus rose from the dead, go to Mark chapter 16 and look at verse 9. It very clearly says Jesus rose on the first day of the week. I don't care what your theology and what people teach you, if we're going to go by the Bible and the Bible only, the Bible says Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Amen? And so clearly, he hadn't gone to heaven yet. Friends, we may have texts in your mind that you can think of, like this thief on the cross or some others, and you you might have questions about that. Please, write them down. We will talk about those. Because there are some verses that appear to be saying something else. But remember, if we're going to have the correct interpretation, we've got to align them all up. And we've got to say to ourselves, you know, maybe in my finite thinking, I don't have this straight yet. And I have to relook at that verse and I have to try and put it in line with the others. And if you think that when you die, you go straight to heaven to be with Jesus, then you have to take all of those verses that we've already looked at and you have to try and put them in line with that theology. Because the Bible is inspired by God. It has to be in agreement. John made it clear. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, I'm looking forward to that day when Jesus is coming. And we are all going to be together. Now, as we started these meetings, I said there are likely going to be times when you are surprised. And perhaps tonight is one of those nights. Right? But we have to let the Bible interpret itself, don't we? There's a reason why the devil wants you to believe that the dead are not really dead. And it's because if he can deceive us through communicating through people that we remember, then he is laying the groundwork for that deceit in the end of time. Because people will believe that there's this whole other realm of existence and uh, that people who have died and the spirits of demons are going to be transforming themselves into familiar spirits. 
We need to beware. We cannot trust what we see or what we hear in these last days. The only thing that we can trust is the Word of God. It is an illogical belief that when you die, you go straight to heaven. Because the dead know nothing. Their thoughts perish. They do not praise God. There are many verses that tell us what happens. This teaching violates some of the most central tenets of Christianity, and yet it has been embraced. I told you towards the beginning that you might be surprised, but friends, can we trust the Bible? Let me say this. The Bible teaches that there would be this power through the Middle Ages of Christianity that was going to cast truth to the ground. And we know, we've seen it, that 1260 years of papal reign, the truth was cast to the ground. But the Bible says at the end of time that truth would be restored. And we're seeing that truth restored today. So can you put your trust in the Bible? I hope so. Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, I want to thank you so much for this study tonight that we can see clearly from your word that the dead sleep in the ground waiting the resurrection. That is the blessed hope that we have, the coming of Jesus to come and take us home to be with him. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you would help us to absorb this information. Help us to fall in love with the truth because you tell us your people perish because they don't have a love of the truth. Lord, we don't want to be among those who are perishing, but we want to be among those who are either sleeping in the grave waiting your resurrection or who are alive and will be translated and we will all come to heaven to be with you at the same time. And so, Lord, help us to realize that we have so many pieces of the puzzle of Jesus and the plan of salvation that don't fit into the true picture of the gospel and lord we've got to discard them we've got to set them aside but we need the power of god to do that because the human heart wants to cling to those things that we think that we already know and lord we know there's only two people that can't learn those who are dead and those who think they already know and so lord help us to be humble help us to realize that we need to follow the word of god not our own inclinations and we ask for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.